It's People, Wildlife, and Jobs, and Why Restoring It Matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreat. How are you, Simone? I'm good. How are you? Good. Happy day after Coastal Day. <laughs> <laughs> How was it? Well, you know, I wasn't able to be there, but I know a lot of our friends were there. Um, it seemed to be a really great turnout, and uh, the Coastal Protection Restoration Authority actually live-streamed the governor's talk. Oh, did he have um, anything good to say? Yeah, I mean, he talked about, you know, obviously the urgency of our crisis, the need to lead with science. Um, but he also, um, you know, there was a little bit of news uh, featuring a friend of yours and a former guest, um, President Clune of uh-huh. Nickel State University. Yes, yes. Um, so wasn't able to be there either, but I uh, had a nickel shirt on, so that counts. Um, this was an idea that came up uh, actually when we were at Nichols at a meeting about a partnership between CPRA and my alma mater, Nichols State University. Uh, and so they entered into a formal partnership and they signed on the dotted line. Um, and uh, they are going to research uh, Chafalaya and Terrebonne Basin issues. And hopefully that um, the idea is that they would build a um, center there, like much like the Center for River Studies that LSU has on, with the Mississippi River model in Baton Rouge. It was so cool. And you could see kind of the Nichols pride. Mm-hmm. I think they even updated the they CPRA did. logo to be Nichols colors. And I will say, you know, uh, President Clune spoke and kind of talked about the importance of the partnership and how the dy- dynamics of the Atchafalaya and the Terrebonne Basin and closest to the coast, why it's so important that Nichols is at the forefront studying that. He also gave a shout out to a very special person. He no did. one else received a shout out but you, no, Simone. No. So congratulations yes. on that well-deserved yes. recognition. He, he is my favorite Nichols president. Um, he grew up in Homa and just, you know, like we have family there that they, he think he is personally affected and understands the issues there. And Nichols is closest to the coast, but I do have to steal a line from my good friend, Joni Tuck. Colonels never retreat. So uh, it was a good day. It was a very good day. They had lots of people there, uh, lots of good announcements. They had a partnerships panel. They had a dynamic legislative interaction uh, with even a few new members of the legislature. And so that all turned out really, really well. Um, But even this weekend, we had some coastal news. Little article came oh, out yes. in U.S. News. I know yes. you were, you know, in the article. Um, yes. And it, I mean, anytime we can get, you know, national recognition of the both the crisis that we're facing down here, but also the work that's happening is um, important. And I think you did a really good job Thank explaining. You you know, kind of what's at stake, what tools we have to deal with this crisis. It Um, didn't hurt that we had a really great author write it who also understands Louisiana's issues because, as we say, he's from there. Um, So we are so happy to welcome on our show today uh, novelist and journalist Ken Wells. Uh, Ken grew up in my part of the world on Bayou Black, uh, which is funny, Ken. um, My address growing up was Little Bayou Black. Um, That was actually in my address. (laughs) which, of course, is uh, deep in South Louisiana's Cajun country. So he has a really rich background uh, being from Louisiana, but he has an amazing journalism career that took him all the way from the Homa Courier uh, to the Miami Herald to the Wall Street Journal and Condé Nast. And so he's got a couple of things that we want to talk to him about right now, including that article. Yeah, I mean... So much to talk about, you know, just and, looking at your bio. Gumbo. Well, like, right. We love to talk about food on this show, we Ken. Do. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, yeah. I have a lot of questions. I'm so excited for this guest. But Yes, yes. So welcome to the show, Ken. 
Good morning, and thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I think I'm going to steal um, Mealy LeBove as my uh, sign-in name for hotels when I don't want people to know where I am. I love that. <laughs> yes, but they know you're from Louisiana then. Sure. <laughs> yep, definitely. Well, Ken, um, I gave a little uh, terrible bio about you, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Well, I, I grew up in Homa, actually by black west of Homa. Um, my dad was an outlander from um, the swamps of Arkansas who moved uh, to Louisiana at the end of the Great Depression and found a swamp bigger than the one he left and loved it. And had his first gumbo when he was 16 years old and vowed at that moment to marry into a gumbo cooking family if he could find one that <laughs> would have him. And so he conned my mother, who was a French-speaking gumbo cook named Toops from Thibodeau, into marrying him. And um, <clears throat> when I was nine years old, he moved us from the little town of Homa out to Bayou Black, where we lived on a little farm and swam in the bayou and hunted gators and frogs and you know, lived kind of the, the, uh, the Tom Sawyer life in a way. So it was fun. So Ken, I see in your bio that um, your father was an alligator hunter and a snake collector. I mean, what was it like growing up with so many reptiles <laughs> in your house and nearby? Well, it's funny. My father was also the, uh, the Boy Scout troop leader by a black and, and we had a hike one day in the 60s and uh, one of the forward scouts spotted an eight foot alligator and so my father um, ran home and got a shotgun and and the, the boy scout troop actually killed the gator and we we, yeah. we, we we put it atop the we had an old jeep station wagon and we actually put it atop the wagon and drove it around <laughs> the bayou to show everybody it might have been the last alligator killed before they closed the season like in 1967 or something like that um that's quite a hood ornament there Ken. Yeah. oh yeah well and of course our, our nearest neighbor well, about a mile away was was the famous alligator annie miller you know who who ran a, a reptile farm mm -hmm. and hunted you know caught live gators and snakes and for about uh, four or five summers in a row, my brothers and I and father were, were her chief live snake collectors. And uh, so instead of working in a gas station in the summer, you know, I went out and tromped the fields and <clears throat> caught snakes for a living. And it, it, it was 10 cents a piece for garter snakes and 50 cents a pound for everything else, you know. But um, yeah, wow. Well, I, you know, I think my childhood, I avoided snakes <laughs> as much as possible. So I didn't want to see them when I was out in the bayou, but hey, that's when, awesome. When I was a little girl, this is, ever, you know, a maiden named Terrio, grew up in Homa, grew up on a bayou, right? When I was little, uh, my dad found uh, a foot alligator in our backyard. And they had to call wildlife and fisheries to come get it. But it was quite the story for a little girl to, to tell everybody. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, well, well, once we, we actually lost track of a, of a live snake, a, a little um, um, garter snake, and, and it crawled under a mattress. And my poor mother, who was snake phobic in, in the first place, was making the bed and thought she had grabbed up some toy and came out with this snake. And I, I can still remember the shriek from my mother when she found out that she was actually holding a snake. <laughs> So we have some adventures involving snake. Not all, not all of them pleasant, but it was. <laughs> no shortage of uh, fodder for great storytelling, yeah, right? right. How, up if home. you spent so much time outside, Ken, how did you 
how did you get to, re- I'm assuming reading and writing, like, you know, um, when did you turn into, you know, somebody who wanted to write stories? Well, you know, it's really funny. My parents, um, my dad had a high school education. My mother quit school in the seventh grade because they were poor and she needed to work. Um, but they were both great readers. They really were. My, my dad subscribed to every magazine in the world. My mother read a lot of um, history and especially history of the South and history of um plantation homes and so from an early age you know I, I had a library card and my father and parents would frog march us to the library and we would take out books and read assiduously and i remember even like being in first grade i was in the bluebird reading group which is like the highest reading group so, <laughs> so you know, I, I always read you know i, I always read and, and i believe that you know that was certainly the foundation for later becoming a writer every every good writer that i know who has succeeded began as a as a good reader. So, yeah, and and I mean, your first job uh, writing was with the Homa Courier, is that correct, or the Homa newspaper? Yeah, it, it was a it was a weekly at the time. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, the story behind that is that I actually didn't know what I wanted to do. I actually wanted to be a rock star. You know, I played guitar and had bell bottom jeans and hippie hair, and and but I wasn't quite good enough for that. And um, I had actually flunked out of Nichols. I, this, you know, it's kind of a sorrowful story, but. I, I was a confused young man. You know, my, my father had been a Marine in the big war and I had done very well in high school biology. So I majored in marine biology. That was my thinking, you know, and I had, I had no idea that you had to take organic chemistry and, and uh, calculus, things of which I had no preparation for. So instead, you know, I, I went to the Aquinas Center and became a very good ping pong player and beer drinker and, and uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So I, I flunked out and I needed a job. And uh, there was a um, an ad in the local paper for you know part time reporter wanted dollar eighty seven an hour apply in person, and I think I was the only person who applied. I, I believe you know their their, their standards um, were such that you know they were just de- they were as desperate as I was to try to get a job. So that was my beginning. Well, we uh, we have to hear more because it was quite the beginning, right? You had you have many many things to follow. That uh, we're up again. It's the break, uh, Ken. If you don't mind uh, sticking with us, uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes, and we'll talk more with Ken Wells. We'll be right back. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's 
biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore Our Retreat. We're talking to author Ken Wells and fellow Nichols alum, Ken Wells. Welcome back to the show, Ken. Um, so right before the break, we were talking about how, um, how you – um, wanted very badly that job at the at the courier. <laughs> you know exactly what you wanted to do, and um, no, I'm just kidding. But uh, tell us tell us how your career just took off from there and your adventures from there because you've you know been all over the U.S. and all over the world, right? Writing. So tell us um, from the courier how how did your life <laughs> go? Well, you know, I mean. I really feel like the courier, uh, you know, was was turned out to be a really great institution. The the you know, I my, my training there, I always compared it favorably to you know the training I got when I got to the Wall Street Journal. Um, it, it was just an unusual situation in which you know the the owner, a guy named John Gordon, who had come down to Louisiana from Oklahoma in the '30s and bought the paper, he was just a very righteous, honest guy. Um, the guy who ran the printing presses, a guy named Ray Dill, was just a great sort of honest guy. And they really believed in this kind of aggressive community journalism. You know, we, our, our job was really to sort of watch the public purse and how politicians were you know, spending you know, the people's money. And Louisiana, that's always a good idea, you know. Um, so I felt like I got really good training that, that um, you know, we, we covered a lot of really interesting stories and you know, in small town journalism, there's nowhere to hide. You know, you, you know, it's it's one thing. When I worked for the Wall Street Journal and you wrote a story about a CEO someplace, I mean, you never saw that person again. But, you know, if you wrote a story about the sheriff in Terrebonne Parish, you went down to the to the commercial cafe and there he was, you know, having his gumbo next to your table and glaring at you because he didn't like the story you wrote. So it, it was an interesting time, I have to say. So can, can I ask you, I mean, obviously, you know, we're in a different time in the media landscape and, um, you know, unfortunately, local papers are not quite, you know, there where they were before. They're just not present. They don't have the resources. I mean, why are, you know, papers like the Home Courier or other, you know, uh, local community newspapers so important? Well, it, it's a great tragedy. You know, essentially, let's just be honest and say that the Internet has pretty much killed off community journalism and a lot of, you know, metro paper journalism because, you know, the ad revenues that used to be there are no longer there. News got commodified by Google and, you know, turned into commodity. And, and we have not yet figured out a good way to finance high quality journalism again. I mean, there, there are a few players like the Wall Street Journal. Bloomberg, the New York Times, all, by the way, supported by billionaires, you know, who are still in the game and doing, you know, high quality stuff. But it's 
it's very hard. You know, I, I went to work for the Miami Herald out of Journalism School in Missouri. And when I got there in 1978, it had uh, 750,000 circulation, a million on the weekend and a really beautiful Sunday magazine. Today, the Herald has about, I think, 70,000 circulation, no magazine and a staff, about 10% of what, what it was when I got there in 1978. So that just tells you about, you know, kind of what's happened to, 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 especially to newspapers. And it is tragic because, you know, we, you know, we really do need a, a, a an aggressive, uh, you know, honest press to keep eye on things. And, and I think there's just so much stuff that's not being covered that needs to be covered. And, you know, there's just no, there's just not the economic support that there used to be to do these things, unfortunately. Yeah. So, um, Ken, I, re- I remember these stories. I think I heard it once at um, when we were at Nichols, maybe even, and then maybe at a Chamber of Commerce banquet. But um, you were the uh, front page editor, right, for the Wall Street Journal. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I was a front page editor. I was not the yeah. front page editor, but we we had a staff. We'll you. We, yeah, we like to get promotions around here. Yeah, so. that's, that's right. Yeah, no, I, no I, I often ran the page um, when the page one editor was not there. So, yes. So you told a story, if I remember correctly, about the period after the Wall Street Journal and the title. And I always thought that was really fascinating because uh, my dad still subscribed and and had stacks of Wall Street Journals in his office always. And it was something that I had noticed. But can you tell that story now, Kim? Well, yeah, they they did a redesign of of the paper and decided to lose the period because they had figured out that it would save them something like $60,000 a year in ink costs just by removing the period. So, you know, that was the kind of things that people were always trying to do to save money and to, you know, to, to sort of, you know, redivert that money to where it should be spent, which is, you know, on the, on the news product. So, um, but, you know, that was, that was back in the days when, you know, when papers like the journal had, had a ton of money. We, you know, when, when I, I worked there for 24 years and a great deal of that time as a feature writer, and I can never remember being denied, um, a trip, you know, if, if, if you need to go to Alaska on short notice and the, and the fare was $6,000, that's what you did. There, you know, there was, you know, that, that they never questioned. We always believe that, you know, the best stories are done on the location. And I, I was once in Alaska coming back from reporting a very serious oil and gas story, you know, up on the North Slope and was in the bar in the Anchorage airport. And these crazy guys in March in the middle of a snowstorm came in with golfing clothes on. And I said, well, where are you going? They said, well, we're going to a golf tournament in Kodiak Island, Alaska. And I said, a golf tournament in March? He said, yeah, it, it's, it's one whole par 100 up the side of a bear infested mountain. <laughs> so I, 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 I called my editor and said, these crazy people are, you know, are going to be doing this golf tournament. Should I go? And he said, by all means, go. And so I, you know, I bought a ticket, hopped on the plane with him and went up and spent hilarious like five days following these crazy people around up the side of a bear infested mountain during a snowstorm as they played golf. So. That's the kind of stuff we would, we would do, you know. Well, you get a week to, re- to to report the story, and then a week to write it. You know, it was just it was a languid amount of time to do serious journalism, but it, it showed off. You know, it just just the quality of the stories. You know, that's that's why they were that good because they spent the time to do it. Now I know there's so much pressure to perform and to get stuff done on a, on a you know turnaround basis with the twenty four seven internet news cycle that, you know, a lot of that is now being lost. You know, people just can't do that anymore. There's just not the 
time or the money to, to allow that kind of stuff to happen. So it's, it's, it's sad in a way, but that's the way of the world. Well, Ken, uh, we're up against another break. We, we need to get into your book and, and what you've been writing about these days. We want to talk about your uh, book that you wrote after Katrina and Gumbo. And we also still want to get to that U.S. News and World Report article. So if you don't mind sticking with us, uh, we'll be back after the break. You're listening to Delta Dispatches on WGSO 990. And you can also find us on Google Play and iTunes and wherever you sub- subscribe to your podcast. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We'll be right back. Hello, you are listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malaz with Restore or Retreats. It is time for the Coastal Stat of the Week. (laughs) Coastal Stat of the Week. The fisheries of Louisiana are a vital part of the state's economy. They provide jobs, income, and tax revenue, but they also generate innovations that protect our coastlines. One out of every 70 jobs in Louisiana is related to the seafood industry, which as a whole has an economic impact of over $2.4 billion annually in Louisiana. Many of these jobs are family-owned and operated companies that have worked for generation to bring the finest seafood to the tables of the world. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ken, we usually ask a fun question of our guest uh, to get to know a little bit more about them. Um, you spent a lot of time, uh, obviously, on the bayou, but also digging into the world of gumbo. So our fun question for you is, what's your favorite kind of gumbo and who makes it? Well, my favorite kind of gumbo is the next one, and <laughs> and obviously, you know, the, my my mama's recipe is the one that I, I, you know, my mother is long gone, but um, I still I learned from my mother how to cook gumbo and how to make that roux, and uh, I still basically cook my mother's recipe. Not only do I cook my mother's recipe, but I teach it to anyone who wants to learn it, including my own daughters. Um, and I've, I've actually cooked it all over the world in South Africa and Australia and London, all the places I've lived. And, um, and it, to rave reviews, not because I'm cooking it, but because I think, you know, my mother taught me so well. So, um, uh, but so, yeah, gumbo, so it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's an inexhaustibly interesting uh, story. And, and I, I really did not know the history of gumbo when I began this book. You know, I, I was kind of like a pilgrim on the gumbo highway. Um, but, but what I did know is that, you know, we, South Louisiana, what I call the gumbo belt really sits in an interesting part of the United States. We, we have the only truly indigenous style of cooking, not, not just a dish like gumbo, but a way of cooking, uh, um, in all of America. And it, so in, in some ways, my, my taking on the gumbo book was, was, you know, using this dish to kind of explain our culture. I think if you really look in, you know, into the history, you know, it's a, it's a dish that's 250 years old. We know the Cajuns were cooking it, you know, by 1804 because there's a written reference to that. We know that the Creoles were cooking it by 1764 because there's also a reference to that. So, you know, it goes back a long way. And of course, you know, everybody, you know, everybody's got a gumbo recipe. In fact, a lot of people have two gumbo recipes and everybody knows that mama makes the best gumbo. And after that, it's, it's basically a you know, shouting match about, you know, whose gumbo is better than, than the others. Um, so can the, the bonus question is, do you put your potato salad in the gumbo or not? No, baby, I don't do that. Oh, that's, okay. that's, 
Um, you have to talk. No, it's, here right <laughs> <now>. <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it's the people, you know, in the in the prairie occasions, they do that. I don't do that. That's not what I do. The prairie cages. My mama would be, my mama would be hot. If I put my potato salad in my gumbo, no, no, and we don't, and, and no, no tomatoes. You do not put the filet in when gumbo is boiling. You do not do that. That would horrify my mother. You know, I mean, everybody's got their rules. You know, and, and of course, the way that Mama cooks it is the only way that it can be cooked. So you know, we have all these incredible rules about how gumbo should be made. But that's what's fun about it. So you, you, we were just talking about you know your research for the book Gumbo Life, but. But can you, you've also written a number of other books, nonfiction book, Post Katrina, The Good Pirates of the Forgotten Bayou. Um, tell us a little bit about that uh, story and the people that you document in it. Yeah, sure. I, I was uh, I, I covered the aftermath of Katrina for The Wall Street Journal. Uh, I, I was there the day after this. I got to Baton Rouge the day after the storm or two days after the storm and was basically on assignment through about the end of January. So, you know, roughly, you know, almost five months. And as I was writing about that, I, I heard uh, I was staying in the Baton Rouge Hilton because there were no hotel rooms in New Orleans, obviously. And I'd heard that from some St. Bernard people who had checked in there that there were still thousands of people who had been trapped in St. Bernard. And <clears throat> If anything, the situation was even more dire than New Orleans, which, you know, 80 percent of New Orleans was underwater, but all of St. Bernard Parish was underwater. And as, as you remember, you know, FEMA couldn't find New Orleans, so no one was going to go down and find these poor people. So I hitchhiked a ride on a, on, a, on a National Guard Black Hawk helicopter and got into St. Bernard into the one place where there were there were a generator and some lights and ran into a shrimp boat captain named Ricky Robin who began to tell me this harrowing tale of how he and maybe 20 other uh, um, oyster and shrimp boat captains had ridden out uh, Katrina in a place called Violet Canal, which was a certified hurricane hole. You know, it was sheltered and his daddy and granddaddy and great grandfather had all ridden out storms there with impunity. But of course, this time, you know, the, the levees all failed and they got this incredible surge. And literally hundreds of people uh, who lived there had not evacuated and were washed out of their houses. And these shrimp boat captains basically saved hundreds of people, took them on their boats, sheltered them in some cases up to three or four days until they could get rescued. Um, so out of that uh, um, came Originally, I, I was not really going to write a book because there had already been like 10,000 know, Katrina books written. But uh, a, an editor at Yale University Press, whose wife is from New Orleans, said, look, this is a compelling American story and, and, and a story not told by anyone else. And you should do it. And so I did. I, I felt like it was in a strange way my holy obligation to the motherland to try to because these were Bayou people. Everybody had written about New Orleans people, but no one had really written about Bayou people. Yeah. My people. I Those are Jacques' people, Yeah, too. I, I mean, I can't imagine. I remember going back to Plaquemines Parish on the East Bank a month after Katrina. So I can't imagine what it looked like in the thick of it and what those people went through. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Do you keep in touch with any of them or do you know? Yeah, well, I'm still in touch with Ricky Roban. I, first of all, I could not have found better characters. You know, Ricky is hilarious and his, his cousin Ronald uh, Robin, who unfortunately has passed away also. They, these, these are just great, you know, Bayou uh, archetypes, uh, just just funny and, and, you know, interesting and diabolically clever and smart. I mean, Ricky, you know, had a high school education, but he, he basically built a 57-foot steel trawler 
you know, designed it in shop class in high school, drew, drew the designs on the parking lot and kept the design in his head. And basically, by the time he was 20 years old, with a welding torch and a come along, had built this, you know, incredible shrimp boat, you know. So, you know, the, you know these are rugged individuals who, who had a great deal of skills. And they were also really funny um, when they finally realized that I was actually writing a book about them. Ronald Roban took me aside and Ken said, Ken, you know, there's, there's something else I tell you before you put me in that book because maybe you'll change your mind. I go, well, what's that, Ronald? He said, well, I got arrested for, you know, running pot on my on my oyster boat. I said, really, Ronald? Like how much pot? He said, tons. Not literally. <laughs> tons of pot. <laughs> tons. You're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, right. That's a whole nother book. Yeah. Uh, well, I know, right? right? But just, you know, just, just too funny. It's just too funny. And, of course, it made the story better, not worse. You know, so it's interesting. Um, well, Ken, you recently just checked back into Louisiana. Uh, you wrote a piece in U.S. News and World Report about Louisiana and about our um, coastal land loss plight. So tell us um, tell us about that. Well, yeah, so, so I, I have a, uh, you know, I'm doing some freelancing now. I like to stay busy. And, of course, I love writing about our coast. I've always written about our coast, you know, with the Wall Street Journal and with Bloomberg. You know, I've always managed to pitch stories about our coast because, you know, I still consider this to be my spiritual home, even though I, I don't live there. Um, uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, U.S. News uh, has their, these what they call the, the best states ranking. And, of course, Louisiana in that ranking year half ago uh, finished dead last in every category and so so the editor called me up an editor called me up and said you know he he, he had been to louisiana with me and understood that you know metrics are not everything and so he asked me to write a spirited defense of, of the motherland which i did and my point is that you know you know, in Italy, for example, the trains don't want to run on time and they have corruption in, in government, but it's still a beautiful place to go and visit. And, you know, it has a lovely, you know, interesting culture and they love food. And, you know, well, that's us. I mean, that's, you know, we, you know, true, you know, we don't have the best school systems and, you know, we, we have, we've had problems with political corruption, but it's a beautiful place to live. And, you know, we have a, a great, you know, spirit, joie de vie, you know, the cooking is unparalleled, the, the food, the music, the people. So anyway, I wrote this defense. And, and since then, you know, they, they have called upon me from time to time to write stories. And this is a story that I actually pitched to them um, because when I was down fishing with my brother in October, I saw these slurry sludge pipelines that were that were helping to rebuild this marsh out by Lost Lake. And I, at first, I didn't know what it was. I, I knew what it was, but I wasn't quite sure what the project was. So when I got back and I looked it up, you know, it sort of reminded me that, yeah, look, there, there, there are people working really hard to try to combat, you know, subsidence. And, and so I just decided that there could be a good story on the state of the state of our reclamation efforts. And so decided to pitch this and they liked it. And um, and so we were able to get that in last weekend. Well, I think I'm I think I'm a little biased, but I certainly appreciate the way that you wrote it. Um, even the title, nurturing nature. You know, we we I think it was positive. I think it was not. You know, it, it didn't. Uh, you know, not address uh, land loss and the crisis that we're facing. But you definitely took a, a little more positive outlook on it. Uh, but really, we need to get that information out to as many readers as possible. And you did it in a, a really, really, really great way. Well, yeah, so, a lot of, uh, we appreciate yeah, a, lot, a lot of people were actually startled. That, you know, that we're we're, we're 
making progress because I, I think what happens is that you know so much bad news gets out and you know we should you know we need to be writing about things that are bad and 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 and, and our continuing problems but it, to me it's, it's, it's just like sort of the climate change story you know you know relentlessly bad news all the time discourages people you know so you know you, you have to write stories that say look there, there are credible people doing credible things you know, to save the system. And, 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 you know, let's be realistic about it. You, you know, we're still continuing to lose Mars, but, you know, th- there is a, a, a great and concerted effort and we finally have some money to do this. And so I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a worthy continuing story that I, you know, I kind of plan to keep my eye on. So. Well, thank you so much for, you know, doing that reporting, for helping to get the word out. And you certainly could have found a better expert on coastal issues in Louisiana than Simone Malaz. Um, Ken, it's just been... like my Cajun name, <laughs> I think. No, no one can. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ken, where can folks find out um, more information about you and your writing? Well, I have a website, www.bayoubro.com, B-A-Y-O-U-B-R-O.com. And uh, basically, it has information about all my books. I've written five novels of the Louisiana Bayous, and Gumbo Life is my third work of narrative nonfiction. Uh, the first was The Good Pirates of the Forgotten Bayou. Then I wrote a beer book uh, back in 2005 uh, called Travels with You notice the pattern here with Ken, with the Katrina <laughs> part aside, he, he researches very interesting topics. <laughs> he also travels a lot to do it. We're on to you, Ken Wells. We're on to you. Well, um, we are out of time. We would love to have you back on the show to check in. Uh, you certainly have so much, so much to talk about. And we love talking about culture and, and your perspective on that. So thank you for being with us today, Ken. Uh, we'll have you back on the show soon. Anytime. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Bye. And we'll be right back after the break. National Wildlife Federation gives voices to the wildlife conservation values that are part of our country's heritage. We are charting a new course for wildlife that our children and grandchildren will thank us for. Visit our website, nwf.org Louisiana, to find out more about our work to restore and protect coastal Louisiana for generations to come. National Wildlife Federation, uniting all Americans to ensure wildlife thrive in a rapidly changing world. nwf.org Louisiana. Hi, I'm Don Cheadle. Listen up. I want to talk to you about something important, the Environmental Defense Fund. EDF isn't like some of the other environmental groups. EDF works together with those on both sides of the issue. Despite all the fighting in Washington, EDF has found ways for both parties to support real progress. That has made our air and water cleaner and the products in our homes safer. So not only can our planet prosper, so can our future. Go to edf.org to see how you can help. At Audubon, we believe that where birds thrive, people prosper. Nowhere is that more evident than in Louisiana. Integrating science, education, and policy, Audubon, Louisiana's mission is to conserve and restore natural ecosystems, focusing on birds, other wildlife, and their habitats for the benefit of humanity and the Earth's 
biological diversity. Visit la.audubon.org to learn more and support our mission. la.audubon.org. Restore Retreat is a coastal nonprofit organization working in the heart of the Barataria and Terrebonne Basins, from the Mississippi River to the Atchafalaya. We work every day to restore Louisiana's coast community and culture with our mission of implementing long-term and large-scale projects for our irreplaceable region. We'll hope you join us in supporting the solution. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and online at www.restoreorretreat.org. You're listening to Delta Dispatches. We're discussing Louisiana's coast, its people, wildlife, and jobs, and why restoring it matters. I'm Jacques Hebert with Environmental Defense Fund. And I'm Simone Malas with Restore or Retreat. That was fun. Yeah, such an interesting conversation. And, you know, having heard his experience of growing up in Louisiana and then moving on, but still staying connected to spiritual home and finding no shortage of inspiration in fiction and nonfiction to write about these issues. It's just fascinating. So please go on to his website, bayoubro.com and, you know, get some of his books. I want to go and dive in. Um, But I'm so excited to welcome our next guest, um, John Price, Regional Director of Operations with Providence Hotels and the old number 77 hotel and chandlery here in new orleans um for those of you who may not know um john and the old 77 have been doing a special promotion um in support of coastal restoration here in louisiana and we're so grateful um for one their recognition of this issue and they're you know working so hard to get the word out about what we need to do to protect and restore our coast but also their you know willingness to actually donate um you know to our organizations and and support the work we do so john from all of us thank you so much and welcome to delta dispatches well thank you very much it's uh it's our it's a pleasure glad to be here so tell us a little bit about your background you're based in new orleans I am. I'm. I'm based here. I've, I've been uh, working with this property uh, here at here at the old number seventy seven hotel in Chandler for about five years. Um, my sort of deep love affair with the region goes back uh, almost a decade now. Um, so very very happy to be here and very happy to be working in an environment that allows us to to explore opportunities to support things that we really believe in. So it's been really good. Really good marriage. So I want to talk a little bit more about the promotion, but first I want you to give you an opportunity to talk about the old 77. I will say some of our colleagues uh, that visit from DC and are in for work, yeah, um, they were call them frequent flyers. Yeah. Okay. They're, One of those is Victoria who works for me too. So. <laughs> they refuse to say anywhere, but the old 77. So as a result, and because of compare Lapine, I've had some time there, but tell us about the, the property and. Sure. So um, it's, it's a really, it's been a really interesting project. You know, the, the building was actually built between 1852 and 1854 and served as a as a warehouse for uh, tobacco and coffee and servicing the port. Uh, the Mississippi was much closer to to where we are here on Chapatulas at the time. Um, and so it was a really sort of, and, and, and the name actually, 77, uh, comes from the original address. Uh, so it was uh, 77 and 79 Chapatulas. Um, and then around shortly after after the Civil War, it was uh, run by a gentleman named E.J. Hart, who ran a retail supply operation that also serviced the port. Um, so we've had a lot of fun digging into the history of that and also sort of 
recasting the hotel in the, into that look and feel, letting the building sort of be what it is uh, without adding a lot to it. But really, uh, to really letting it just sort of breathe and be and be a really fabulous old building in New Orleans, which we really love. Um, <clears throat> Provenance Hotels is is a really that's sort of our um, it's it's our thing uh, to take buildings like that and repurpose them and re sort of find their souls and let those show. Uh, so it's it's been really great job here uh, doing that. The um, <clears throat> the company's based in Portland, Oregon. Uh, and we've had just a wonderful time uh, coming into New Orleans and learning about learning about this this region. So tell us, you you try to really um, kind of keep it going with the staff as well, too, right? There's lots of New Orleans natives, but others are newcomers that have come to New Orleans. So y'all really try to carry it through from building to staff, right? Yeah, uh, I think you know as much as you can do to a building. Um, when you're when you're redesigning it or renovating it or restoring it, ultimately, uh, what makes a hotel experience is really the people that that uh, a guest can encounter. Uh, some of those people are natives; they've been here, you know, their whole lives, and know the city and, and have their own uh, sort of appreciation for it, and and always so willing uh, to share that. And then there's people who are transplants um, who have come to love the city, like myself. Um, who also, you know, share their particular um, loves about it with guests. And I think, you know, that's really what what um, I think makes it a special place. And then, of course, it, it does no harm uh, that we sit next to one of the best restaurants in the city, with Nina Compton at, uh, as executive chef, just doing a bang-up job, just some of the best food in town. So, I mean, it's just been a really, it's a, it's a really great opportunity for a guest to come to New Orleans uh, and, and really get a sense of it uh, really from the outset of their, of their visit. And folks may know Nina from shows like Top Chef. She's always on shows like that. Um, so that's great. That's a very good point about the people that make up a hotel as well. So tell us about this this little thing that you got going on with the Resort of the River Delta. Yeah. So, you know, as with many good ideas in New Orleans, it was born over a cocktail. Um, we were, we were, Last year, when we when we celebrated the tricentennial in 2018, we had developed a promotion called uh, NOLA 300, and it was the tagline was celebrating three centuries of magic, and we found that it was just incredibly popular. Um, we booked probably around 1,600 room nights, which is a fair amount for a, a basically what was a summer promotion at the time. Um, and so we brought in a whole lot of people to the city who had never been here before and really got amazing feedback. It was a really good, it was a really good promotion. I think it was 25% off or something like that of, of regular pricing. And it was some of those people really for the first time visiting and, and just the feedback was great. So <clears throat> fast forward to 2019 and we're sort of wondering, well, now what do we do? We can't really, I mean, it seems kind of silly to do a NOLA 301, right? It doesn't, it didn't ring so quite right. So uh, something happened where somebody somewhere in the course of the conversation brought up um, the coast and the subject of the conversation became, you know, 300 years, but how many more um, will we be here for? And how many, 
how much longer will a city like New Orleans and so many other communities on the Gulf be able to survive the environment the way it is right now? <clears throat> so, and then it all just falls together as sometimes I think that happens when you're sitting with um, people who, who are truly engaged and, and, and talking about things. It just all, it, within five minutes, we had the entire uh, promotion sort of out in our head. So we called it 300 more um, with a suggestion that we would like to be here for 300 more years. Um, and it's very simple. Um, it's, uh, it's a 20% off our regular rates and then 5% we donate to um, coastal restoration. And, you know, I have to, I, I thought it's cool. I like, I like the idea of it. I had no idea, but actually I just checked the stats um, as of this morning and we've actually, having been um, live with this promotion for about th four weeks, four, five weeks, five weeks, uh, we have booked 500 room nights um, and it's just, you know, I never thought it would be quite like that. So. This will be um, by far one of the most widest reaching um, efforts we've ever done. Now, obviously, we like selling the room nights. That's what we're here for. But that's 500 people who have the opportunity to learn a little bit something more about all the effort that goes into restoring the coast. So every time you book that reservation, you're given a link both to our booking engine where, where you actually book your reservation for a hotel, but you're also taken to um, restore the Mississippi Delta website, which, you know, I, I'm sure people are really excited about checking that out. Um, this will be, as I said, the, the one of the biggest and best things we've done in terms of a promotion. But when I think about the number of eyeballs on that, you know, website and learning a little bit more all the time, I think it's just fantastic. Um, and I think that comes out of a genuine interest of travelers today really want to engage with where they are in a very authentic way. So there's many, many things to do in New Orleans. You know, there's everything from Bourbon Street to cemeteries, and we all know the drill. But I, I, I'm thrilled to see that people are taking a deeper interest in location and, and making an effort to help. So it's great. Well John, that is so exciting. And we're so grateful to yourself and the old 77, as well as all 500 of those guests that were willing to, you know, book just and, our friends that and just say, say 500 you know, times. <laughs> and so that they care about, you know, the future of New Orleans and these issues. So thank you again. Where can people go to um, book a stay at the old 77 next time they're in town and learn more? Um, uh, old number, old77hotel.com is our um, website, and you can hit that special offers page. And there's an array of things uh, that you can take a look at. Um, and there's some really good information about um, this particular program, and, and a lot of the history of the hotel is there and the building as well. So, um, yeah, it's simple, simple to do. Well, thank you again, and we'll have to have you back on to hear what else has been going on um, with uh, the old 77 and Providence Hotels. Yeah, exactly. You can, good thanks to Goods That Matter for a dirt-scented restore candle. It's a blend of fir, bergamot, and a tad of citrus. Um, citrus. So thank you again, John. We're out thank of time. You, but, um, you. you know, we appreciate it, and thanks to everyone for listening. Mm -hmm.